Acts chapter 8, verses 12 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you just for this time, and uh, your truth is so powerful, and um, you know, a, a passage like this uh, really has the potential to minister to our hearts and, in a deep and powerful way, and so uh, as we come uh, in this moment, really give us ears to hear and to receive what the Spirit has to say to us today through this word, through this living word. Uh, we pray that this word would give us life. We pray that this word would fill us with hope. We pray that this word would be so deeply impressed upon our hearts that the truths of what it says uh, would become a part of us through eyes of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a very important person to know. After all, he is uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity. And we're basically asking two questions throughout this series. We're asking who is the Holy Spirit, which we went over for the first couple of sermons. And the second thing we're looking at is what does he do? Uh, last week, as our elder Fred came back from sabbatical, he gave uh, a message that has been in my head for like the past week. And I thought it was a really great message, perfect message on feeling lost and I actually didn't realize that I had similar feelings until he articulated <laughs> what it feels like to feel lost. And uh, I thought it was a really timely message uh, for many of us. And he put uh, into words uh, maybe a feeling we may have had, but we didn't recognize where it was coming from. And especially what resonated with me, at least, was when he said uh, he gave the description a low-grade frustration. I thought that was really spot on because... When we have this low-grade frustration that comes out of the sense of being lost and uh, we're not where we're supposed to be and we're, we're, we need to be somewhere else, you know, we're not necessarily in crisis mode. We're, when we're in crisis mode, there's like a clear something is wrong or something is wrong with us. But this uh, low-grade frustration, uh, at the same time, even though it's not crisis mode, we, we don't feel good. And we feel like maybe something is a little bit off. Uh, I've also been trying to spend a lot of time working on uh, my schoolwork. If you don't know, I'm enrolled in school. I'm trying to obtain uh, the worst uh, named degree for a Christian pastor. It's called a demon, a doctorate of ministry, but it sounds like 
a demon. So um, when I say oh, I'm getting a demon, like, you know, people are like, what? What is that? Uh, I'm, I'm going for a doctorate of ministry, which is uh, it's not an academic degree. It's more of a practical degree. And uh, I've been trying to do work on it because my paper was due actually November 1st, which was like a couple of weeks ago. But I had to get an extension because I didn't finish. And so I'm, I'm trying to do some research and, and write the paper and things like that uh, in these next couple of weeks. And as I was like doing some research, especially on ministry in New York City, um, I, you know, because I was thinking about Fred's sermon, uh, a lot of it, I saw a lot of connections. Now, a couple of years ago, I was part of this pastor's group, and the task of this pastor's group were we were discussing preaching. How do you preach in New York City? And we had pastors from all different kinds of churches in the Bronx, from Queens, from uh, Brooklyn, and believe it or not, even from Staten Island, right? And uh, there's a range of socioeconomic uh, congregations, so some were of a lower income, some were of higher income, different backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. And we're talking about preaching, and one of the things we're talking about is the importance of something called contextualization. Contextualization is saying, how do you take this message in the Bible that was written in ancient times and how do you uh, connect it to what people are going through now, right? How do you bridge these two worlds? That's contextualization. And the important thing about contextualization is you have to know uh, like, like what story people are abiding in, what story people are living in, what's important, what are their hopes, who is the hero of their story, like these kinds of questions. And of course, in different cultures, these questions are different. So you come to the Bible and you ask maybe different questions depending on the culture of uh, the church, the culture of the borough, the culture of, uh, of a city, whatever it may be. And that's, that's how you should preach in order to connect it to the people, right? So that's a little bit of the technical aspect of, of preaching. Now, as we were talking, right, everybody has different contexts, and, you know, a question came to my mind, and I threw it out to the group, and I said, do you, do you guys think that there is an overarching meta-narrative of New York City? Uh, because there is so much diversity in New York, you could say there's all these, like, little stories going on, but is there one overarching city that encompasses maybe the experience of being in New York? And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of discussion. And then finally, uh, everybody seemed to settle on this answer. I think if there is a meta-narrative of New York, it's the narrative of being a pilgrim or a sojourner or a wanderer. Uh, it's this idea that New York is not originally your home, but you're coming from your home someplace else. You're being transplanted into New York. And now you are trying to create this new life away from what you used to consider to be home. Let me give you a couple statistics that I, uh, I was uh, reading this week. You know, New York City has a population of over 8 million people. Uh, over 3 million of that 8 million people were actually born in another country, so uh, a high level of immigration. New York has the largest Chinese, West Indian, Puerto Rican, and Dominican populations of any other city in the world outside of, obviously, the cities of those respective countries. Over 200 different languages are spoken in New York City. And uh, uh, a lot of this uh, immigration activity comes primarily from Latin American countries and people who move to New York from a different country with a different language and a different culture trying to start a new life in New York City. Not only that, uh, something else has happened in terms of uh, cities and New York City in particular, but over the last let's say maybe 30 years, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the number would be, but uh, New York City has become a very desirable place to live. Um, before that, there was uh, 
you know, people looked at the city as, oh, it's a scary place, and there's a lot of drugs and prostitution and violence, and what was happening is there was this trend of people would leave cities and move to the suburbs. These days, the trend is actually the opposite, and more and more and more people are now leaving the burbs or leaving rural areas to come into the cities um, because of probably greater opportunity or maybe because cities are desirable and attractive places to live. And I think our church is actually a byproduct of that because uh, a lot of us, we're, we're composed of a lot of transplants, right, moving into the city. We had a home from somewhere else, and from that place, we move into the city, and we try to create and start this life here in the city. So uh, when we do that, usually we move. The catalyst for it is there's some kind of opportunity related to education, related to career, related to maybe even a relationship. Some people have moved here because of a relationship. Now, <coughs> we also know New York has its challenges. One of the challenges is, at, at least in Manhattan, it's an expensive city. Uh, the work culture can be brutal. Uh, people can maybe feel burned out after um, working so hard. And people are also leaving the city all the time and moving out of the city all the time. And personally, I would say the hardest thing about um, you know, serving uh, a congregation in New York City is the transients. You forge these meaningful relationships, you forge these friendships, and then uh, what, you know, what happens is what happens everywhere. People kind of uh, move to other cities or move elsewhere. And you know, I remember talking to a woman, and she was in her 50s, and she had lived in New York City for several decades now. And uh, I was just asking her about what her experience was like. And she, she herself says, you know, the norm of being in New York is you just have to keep making new friends <laughs> over and over again. And there's all these, right, there's certain periods of life where there's like this uh, mass exodus of friends uh, that usually happens. And, you know, it's probably related to what's going on in, uh, in their particular lives with like marriage, family, kids, whatever it may be, or even job opportunity. But she would say, yeah, I've, I've had to make friends over and over again for the last couple of decades. And I think that's, that's a hard thing, especially as we get older, it actually gets harder <laughs> to make friends the older we get. <coughs> so there's kind of like this constant shift and change and movement that happens uh, even with our community. And when we don't feel like we have uh, something to tether us, something solid, um, you know, I, I, don't, I think we can't help but feel a little bit like, um, you know, what, what's rooting us here. Uh, a few years ago, I heard a statistic about uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, one of the, uh, the bigger churches in New York City, and uh, here's the statistic I heard. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but many years ago, they had attendance of about 5,000 people, okay? Uh, they tracked these things, and they said every summer, there would be a turnover of about 2,000 people. So 2,000 people of that 5,000 people would move and leave New York City, but then another 2,000 people would come and, and come into Redeemer. That, that's a lot of change, right? That's a lot of movement. That's a lot of transience. And uh, when you have that kind of transience, it can be hard to really shape or it has an impact on the, the dynamics of community life. And those who uh, decide to stay in New York, that can be hard, right? That can be hard to deal with. So thinking about New York City and ministry in New York City and being a church in New York City and thinking about Fred's message last week, um, it tells me that probably to a certain degree, we all feel like that. We feel like a pilgrim. We feel like we're looking for a place to call home. We're, we're looking for a place to find roots. And uh, maybe we don't feel like we ever grasp it. So we're kind of in this mode of constantly wandering, 
constantly looking. Is, is there something better? Is there a place? Is there a time where I can finally say this is home? And we feel like we're always in transition. Uh, for a sojourner or a pilgrim, there's always uncertainty, right? There's uncertainty about the future. And uh, we want to feel like we're moving towards something, but we don't always have the map. And so we're not sure what that something necessarily is. That, that's the experience of a sojourner. And as I was talking to these pastors, <coughs> they were saying, hey, yeah, that, that fits the context of my congregation, even in the midst of all that diversity. As I was preparing the sermon, uh, I also realized something. You know who else would feel like that besides a sojourner, besides a pilgrim, besides a wanderer? Orphans, right? An orphan would probably feel like that. When you are a young child, your sense of security, your sense of identity, your sense of safety, your sense of belonging comes from your parents. But if a child, a young child is maybe abandoned by their parents or if a, a young child loses their parents, they lose that sense of safety and this, that sense of security and identity and belonging. And when we, we feel lost, I think it usually means that there is a, uh, th- there is a, maybe a, a deficiency in, in one of those areas of like safety, of security, of identity, of belonging. There's something about that or purpose that we, we feel like we, we don't quite have. And so I think there's something similar to uh, the feeling of lostness to that of an orphan. And the reason I mention that is because Paul uses that as an illustration or as an analogy to describe what sin has done to us. It has alienated us from God and it has made us spiritual orphans. And what the Holy Spirit does is he applies the work of Christ to us by bearing testimony to the fact that we are no longer orphans anymore, that we have been adopted as sons and are therefore children of God. And if you are someone who has been in the church for a long time, uh, maybe this is something that, like being a child of God, is something that you take for granted. But I want you to really just think about the implications of what that means if we are children of God. And it really is quite astounding. We're spending a couple weeks going through this glorious, wonderful chapter in Romans chapter 8. And we're trying to see what it says about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if you read the entire chapter, and I actually came to this realization recently, and I don't know why, but it's so obvious. If you read the whole chapter, it actually has a ton of things to say about assurance, right? How do you know God loves you? How do you know God accepts you? How do you know God will continue to love you and work for your good? And Romans 8 is answering all those questions, all those kinds of questions for us. We can be sure that God accepts us because there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been justified through faith by his blood through the cross. The spirit who now dwells within us has destroyed that power of sin that is over us so that we would be set free. Through the cross, we are declared to be a righteous people. And then you have this great climax that comes at the end of the chapter where Paul says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there any greater statement of assurance that we long for and that we need than that? Paul is assuring these people these things are true. This is what I'm certain of. But where does that kind of assurance come from? Where do we get that assurance about the love of God towards us? And I would say, according to verse 16, it comes from the Holy Spirit 
who bears witness to the fact that we are children of God. You see, if you ground your assurance in anything else, I think there will always be something spiritually dysfunctional about you. So, for example, maybe your assurance comes from your sense of uh, achievement. Maybe it's moral achievement. Maybe it's career achievement. Maybe it's relational achievement. Or, or, and if it's moral achievement, whether or not you feel like you've lived a good, decent life, if you've been kind to others, or uh, if you find your assurance from that, uh, there's going to be something dysfunctional about how you relate to God because either you're going to relate to God like this. I've lived a good life and therefore I'm entitled to good things happening to me. Or you're going to be like this. I haven't lived a good life and I'm crushed by my sense of guilt and shame and I, I feel unworthy. Right? You're going to fall into those two camps. The person who feels entitled to a good life, uh, you're going to have problems when you suffer because uh, you're going to say, I don't deserve this. This is not something that God should have allowed to happen to me. And the person who's crushed by the sense of unworthiness is going to have problems when they fail. And they're going to say, oh, I failed and I don't deserve uh, to be loved or accepted by God. I'm so unworthy to God. I'm unworthy to myself. I'm unworthy to others. But you know, both kinds of people, you know, ultimately what you need to know is at the end of the day, you are a child of God. You know, adoption is a very interesting way to understand God's action or activity towards us. Uh, scholars have tried to understand Roman adoption to see the meaning of what Paul is saying here. And, the, you know, there's some similarities, similarities between Roman adoption and modern adoption in that adoption can be a very costly thing. Uh, if you know anyone who has adopted a child, it's a, it's a pretty long process. It's a pretty draining process. It's actually also a pretty expensive process. Uh, the adopting parent usually has to... Uh, take a lot of time off from their work. Uh, there's a significant financial cost. Uh, I, the people that I know who have adopted, they had to fly back and forth to a different country because the child they were adopting was from a, another country. And so, you know, I do have a, a ton of respect for people who make that decision and decide to adopt. It's, it's probably one of the most uh, powerful, tangible ways to express what God has done for us. And uh, Roman adoption was costly as well. But uh, I, I think, right, I'm not a Roman historian, but I think it was probably a little more transactional and a little less sentimental than uh, modern adoption in this way. You know, in Roman adoption, uh, the, the person who was being adopted, they might have actually been like a grown man or a grown male who had property, who had debts. So there's a transaction that happens and the, the adopting father would have to absorb uh, the debts of that person and... Uh, and, and that person, the, the person who's being adopted, the son that's being adopted, would then be entitled to the legal rights of that father's property after that father would die. And you see, I think that's why uh, Roman adoption is tied to this idea of debt, which we see the passage starts that way when Paul talks about how we are debtors. When God adopted us as his children, one of the things it means is it was very costly for him. Uh, he absorbed the debt created by our sin, and on the flip side, he also makes us heirs to this wonderful and glorious inheritance that is promised in heaven. But still, um, I don't think you can argue adoption has to be a strange experience, especially uh, the older you are, if you are the person being adopted. You know, just because the courts say, hey, these two people are now legally your parents, uh, you may not feel that on a subjective level, right? Uh, I was on a flight once. And uh, usually when I'm on airplanes, I watch movies that I wouldn't otherwise watch because it's like a limited selection. And I started watching this movie called Instant Family. I don't know if you heard of it with uh, Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne. 
Um, I didn't finish the movie. Uh, it wasn't that great, so I turned to something else. But here's, here's the premise of the movie. Um, it's about a married couple, and they decide they want children, and they're going to uh, take in three foster kids, ages 15, 10, and 6, because their mom is in jail uh, on some like uh, crime related to drugs. And uh, you know it's supposed to be a comedy, and the comedic elements are, are actually drawn from the awkwardness of that situation. You have these two complete white parent strangers bringing in these three uh, Latino, Hispanic foster kids into their home, and it's like, ha, 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 right? That awkward situation creates a lot of uh, comedy for a movie. And, you know, one of whom is already 15 years old, which is pretty old, and already has an independent mind. And so even though the courts say to these two people, you are now their legal guardians, uh, it's not something that these kids necessarily feel to be true, right? The 15-year-old, of course, gives them the hardest time and doesn't embrace them. Uh, she can't believe that these two strangers would really care about them or their siblings more than their biological mom because they're not the biological parents. And, but there is this moment where uh, the youngest six-year-old child calls Mark Wahlberg's character daddy for the first time, and he's like, oh, did you hear what she said? Like, finally, like she feels like some kind of parental-child relationship there in a subjective way. You know, getting from what might be objectively or even legally true to feeling it subjectively and in a personal way, that transition, I think, is a hard transition to make. I think the same could be said spiritually, too. It, the Bible says one thing about our status before God, that we are now children of God, uh, but sometimes we don't really personally or subjectively necessarily feel that, Right? I think a lot of our issues can probably be boiled down to that. We, we know in our minds, yeah, of course I'm a child of God, but then we have all these insecurities, but then we have all this uh, crises of identity, and we have uh, these crises of who do I belong to, where is my roots? And uh, I think part of that is it, it w if we were to feel in a very sub uh, powerful, personal, <laughs> right, subjective way, ah, yes, I belong to God, I have a home in Christ, uh, and all these spiritual truths that sometimes can be difficult to grasp, uh, I think that would probably do a lot for us in terms of the, the things that we struggle with. Now, um, verse 15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you don't feel like you are a child of God, I do think maybe one of the things you might feel is you might feel a little bit like a slave to a certain degree. One of the differences between a slave and a son is a slave is going to be driven by fear. If you aren't devoted to the, ma uh, to the master, you're going to be afraid of the consequences, right? Now, a master doesn't always have to be a person, but as Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount, money could be our master as well, and we, we serve the almighty dollar, and all our ultimate devotion is for money, and we become a slave to it. Our, our financial situation tells us if we are good or bad. Our financial situation tells us if we are acceptable or unacceptable. Our financial situation says whether we are secure or insecure people. And since there is no assurance when it comes to money because we aren't guaranteed to have it, we aren't guaranteed to grow it, we aren't guaranteed to make it, then basically money can do no other thing but to drive us through fear because we're always going to be afraid of not having enough or losing it. Slaves are driven by fear. A child of a parent shouldn't be driven by fear, right? A child is only driven by fear if they're treated like a slave and not a child. 
And that happens, you know, if a, if a parent, if a father is oppressive or abusive, then uh, that child might be driven by fear. But, you know, if it's an, a good, loving father, then the child should have a sense of assurance that I am loved, right? They should feel free to approach their father anytime and say what Jesus is saying, Abba, which is kind of like saying, Daddy. Good father is going to assure them of their love for them, uh, even, even in the face of discipline. Uh, you know, as I, as I discipline my children, um, one thing I try to always do, especially for my oldest, because she takes getting in trouble the hardest. <laughs> well, I should be careful about what I say about her because uh, when my wife drives her to school, she says that they listen to the sermon. <laughs> so let me, mm. Yeah, so sometimes children get disciplined by their father, right? Um, I think it's always important to remind them in the midst of that dis- discipline, uh, I, I love you still, right? I love you no matter what. I'm not rejecting you. So uh, after a father disciplines their child and the child you know, might feel like, oh, I did wrong and therefore maybe I'm being rejected, uh, I think it's important to reassure them with that sense of safety. I have to discipline you because you did something wrong. I have to teach you the right ways. I'm doing this because I love you and you may not understand that I love you, but look, no matter what you do, as bad as it is, I will continue to love you. And I think it's important to give right, that kind of assurance to children so that they're not driven by fear, but that they're, uh, they, they feel the safety and the comfort and the security of a, of a love of a parent. What we have here is we have a perfect, I mean, earthly parents are imperfect. I'm an imperfect father, but we have a perfect heavenly father who has adopted us as his own and, ensure, and assured us of his love for us. We have a spirit who dwells within us, bearing witness to that love of the Father so that we can rest and receive his promises through Christ Jesus. And just as a child, I think, feels safe and secure when they know they are loved by their father, by their parent, we have even more reason to believe we are safe and secure, that we belong, knowing that we are loved by our heavenly father, that we have been adopted into his very own family. You know what our father does? promises us this great and glorious and wonderful future inheritance, which is what the second half of the passage is about, where we will receive the freedom of the glory of the children of God and the redemption of our bodies in the new creation, and therefore we can be assured uh, of even our future. Now that last statement, I was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if I should split this into two messages, but uh, I'm going to say this a little bit briefly, but I think it's important. What Paul says here really has the potential or the power to carry us through our suffering, right, through hard times. Uh, The second half of the passage has to do with suffering. I would say probably in the context specifically suffering as a Christian, but, you know, suffering is a really big and and heavy topic. And what Paul does is he he likens uh, the sufferings of the present time to the groanings and pains of childbirth. Now, hmm. You know, I am not a woman, and I have not given birth. Neither is Paul, right? So I guess um, both he and I are are judging it from the outside in terms of the pains of childbirth. But (coughs) uh, I knew a couple who talked about childbirth, and, you know, when my wife had uh, our kids, uh, she was like, um, you know, she wasn't like screaming and stuff. She was just really focused. Um, I have a couple, we have a couple that we know, 
and they decided they wanted to deliver their baby through a midwife without any kind of medical intervention, so no epidural or painkillers or anything like that. And uh, <coughs> I, right, my wife and <laughs> my wife is like, why? <laughs> but I, I guess there's like health benefits. To, I don't. I don't know. I don't know why they did it. But <laughs> after they had their baby, I, I was talking to uh, the husband about the experience, and he was saying his wife. Uh, was in so much pain, and as he was watching her deliver birth, like he felt so bad that he like just started kind of like tearing up and crying because he's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she is in so much pain, and it's like so heartbreaking to see how much pain she's in, and she's like pushing and she's going through labor, she's screaming, she's crying from the pain, she's pushing so hard that actually the blood vessels in her eyes popped, right? So her eyes were like completely red. Um, after giving birth, and he was like, uh, you know, she wanted to look at herself in the mirror. <laughs> he was like, honey, I don't think that's a good idea, <laughs> right? I don't want you to be shocked. Um, but like the 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 pain of right childbirth, the the screaming, the crying, um, you know, the agony, the labor, all of that. That's actually what Paul is envisioning when he's talking. He's thinking about this present world and the sufferings of the present world. Uh, I'm going to guess all of us to some degree have either gone through suffering, probably to different degrees, right? Some is more intense than others. If you haven't, you probably will in the future, although I, I cannot believe that nobody here has gone through suffering or hard things. And the older we get, the more we're going to uh, encounter things like death and sickness and ailments. Um, <coughs> that's the present world. We cry, right? We scream. There's pain. There's agony. Our bodies are left battered and bruised. Suffering, I think, is usually one of those things that uh, people will struggle with when it comes to believing in God, either like on a philosophical level, but more oftentimes on a personal level, uh, or something that will um, make them struggle in terms of why should I continue to believe in God? Suffering is a very powerful force. And I think part of the reason is because uh, we don't always know the answers to why some things happen to us. Uh, why certain bad things happen to us. And not having those answers, I think, can be really frustrating for some people. Uh, You know, when I've spent time with people who have experienced something hard, uh, sometimes they'll ask ask me directly, it's like, why do you think God let this happen, right? Uh, And, you know, how do you answer that? I'm not God, and I don't really know the answer to that. So usually what I'll say is, you know, I, I really don't know, right? I don't know why God would allow this to happen to you but then I, I ask this, and I say, you know, even if you did know the reason, do you think it would really make you feel better in this moment? And they would oftentimes say, yeah, I guess not, right? I suppose not. And I think that's true. You know, sometimes a reason or explanation can help us. But I think what we really need in that moment of hurt and pain and agony, I think we probably really need the presence of someone who loves us more than just an explanation or more than a reason. And... I think young children know that. Um, you know, one of my kids might get ex- upset, right? They build a Lego, and <laughs> then someone kicks it, because on the floor someone kicks it, and that Lego thing gets destroyed. Ah, right, the thing I built is destroyed. And I would say, well, the reason your Legos got destroyed is you left it in the middle of the floor, and someone tripped over it, and your Lego got destroyed. You know, in that moment, I guess I'm thinking, hey, let me explain it to you, right? Let me explain to you why you're in pain. 
But guess what? They don't really care about the explanation, right? They're just like, ah, mommy, daddy, most likely mommy, because mommy's softer, mommy, <laughs> right? What they want is comfort. They want love. They want someone to reassure them, hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, we can rebuild it again, right? Things will be okay. And in a very primitive way, you see that dynamic in uh, how a child experiences pain and suffering, even though maybe th what they're experiencing, right? from a perspective of an adult, is like, oh, that's not that bad. But I guess to them, it's, it's really painful and it's really hurtful. I think what really, we really need at the end of the day is in our suffering and in our pain, uh, the one thing that will probably help us the most is going to be the presence, being in the presence of uh, someone who truly loves us. When we suffer, uh, one of the reasons why it hurts so much is it's a very lonely feeling, Right? You go through something hard, and it feels so lonely, and that lonely compounds what you're going through, and it makes you just feel worse. And, uh, you know, you feel like nobody knows how I feel in this moment. Nobody can really understand, and I'm truly alone in what I'm going through right now. But you know what? As a child who is comforted by the presence of a loving parent, I think God can comfort us with his presence and with his father-like love for us. And even though we may not know ultimately the reasons for why he allows suffering, we do know this. It's not because he doesn't care about us. It's not because he doesn't love us. Because Romans 8 says the exact opposite. That we can be assured, if we can be assured of one thing, it is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so just as a parent might reassure their child, hey, everything's going to be okay. We'll rebuild that Lego set together. We'll make it even better than it was before. God as our Heavenly Father, with His promises, with His glorious promises, does the same thing to us even now. In your present sufferings, there's a lot of groaning. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of agony. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of injustice. I know it hurts right now, and you may just have to feel that pain right now, but it's going to be okay. There is a glorious resurrection to come. There is a new creation to come where all things that were wrong will now be made right, where all sin and death and evil will be vanquished and gone, where there will be no more tears and no more pain, where everything is going to be okay because you are my child and nothing's going to separate my love from you. That's the assurance we need, friends. And here's what the Holy Spirit does. You know, without the Holy Spirit, that, that objective reality and that subjective uh, uh, personal experience of it, uh, when we have that gap, at least from our perspective, it's kind of like, well, the objective reality of it might, might as well not even be true because it doesn't do anything for us. I think one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he makes God real to us and he makes God's promises real to us. And one of the things that we see in this passage, we have been adopted as sons. And sons not being like male, female, but related to the idea of receiving an inheritance in the ancient world. We have been ad 
adopted as sons. And the Holy Spirit in his ministry is going to impress that upon you, make it real for you, and say, this is real. This is you. You are a child of God. Find belonging there. Find security there. Find love there. Find joy there. Find peace there. Find identity there. You are a child of God. Let's pray together.